I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for itself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! And you will atone! Good afternoon. Now, uh, before I get started, just a reminder that on Monday's show, this coming Monday, which will be a best of The Richard Serrett Show, I'll be making a very special announcement. You'll want to be sure to be listening just after 4 p.m. It's exciting, and you'll want to hear all the details about how you can get involved. And I'm going to give you a hint. It has to do with Greece. Did I say too much? Maybe. Maybe not. Anyway, be listening Monday. The last uh, of the great saloon singers passed away today, just two weeks shy of his 96th birthday, Tony Bennett, who interpreted the great American songbook perhaps better than anyone, recorded more than 70 albums, earning him 19 Grammys, perhaps best known for his song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Tony Bennett, he's in the, uh, the pantheon with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, Ella Fitzgerald, And uh, Tony Bennett was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease back in 2016, gone at the age of 96. The other day, I was speaking with Daniel Boardman from the National Telegraph about strong rumors 
that the Prime Minister is planning on stepping down before the next federal election, which is not expected before 2025, the Liberals simply aren't able to fundraise with this joker leading the party. His approval ratings are cratering. His disapproval ratings are heading steadily northward. I mean, this guy is radioactive. He's despised at home. He's mocked and ridiculed internationally. How bad is it? Well, it seems now that wherever the crime minister goes, he gets booed and heckled. Most recently, yesterday in Belleville, Ontario, where nearly 100 protesters surrounded Trudeau in his motorcade. It wasn't exactly a warm welcome. The protesters greeted the trust fund brat with chants of traitor, traitor, traitor. Uh, Trudeau was in Belleville to mark the seventh anniversary of the Liberal government's child care benefit. He also planned to take in a uh, local farmer's market and meet the mayor of the city. His uh, route to the farmer's market vendors was then blocked by a group of like-minded individuals. Trudeau's security detail allegedly pushed away two women who approached his motorcade. Uh, Trudeau was standing on an SUV's footboard, waving and smiling at the crowd. He's totally oblivious. He actually thinks people like him. <laughs> I haven't seen citizens of a country warm up to a leader like this since uh, Ceausescu. How did that end? Have you heard of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy? He's running for the uh, GOP nomination for president. And um, uh, of East Indian uh, heritage, his parents both immigrated to uh, the United States from India. He's a, uh, an entrepreneur, very successful businessman, very young. Uh, and, you know, very forthright in his opinions. I mean, he does not um, mince words. He says it exactly the way he feels. And this is starting to resonate because there's a new survey of the 2024 Republican presidential race uh, that finds a dead heat for second place. The survey from Kaplan Strategies shows Governor Ron DeSantis, whose who's, um, uh, campaign is just completely stalled. Anyway, DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy are now tied at 12% each. Uh, both, of course, are well behind Donald Trump's 48%. Uh, the pollster says this latest survey is an example of Vivek momentum. Ramaswamy's outperformed six other hopefuls by more than double, mark marking a significant surprise in this poll, according to Kaplan. Indeed, no other candidate is uh, even above mid-single digits. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Vice President Mike Pence each take 5% support. Uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley has 3% backing former... Uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchison is at 1%. Uh, Kaplan frames the GOP race as likely winnowing down to three candidates, uh, predicting the lower-tier candidates will drop off and their voters will either return to Trump or rally behind rising stars like Ramaswamy or perhaps DeSantis. Uh, Ramaswamy knows he's not going to win, but he um, is likely, I think, uh, to really set himself up nicely for 2028 uh, or perhaps... Uh, even find himself in uh, inside a, a Trump administration should Trump prevail in 2024. And of course, let's hope that he does. Uh, have you seen Sound of Freedom yet? I mean, is it even playing in theaters in Canada? Will they allow it? Well, moviegoers in the United States are reporting that movie theaters are intentionally sabotaging showings of the film. Sound of Freedom, by either forgetting to dim the lights or, in at least one case, turning off the air conditioning in the theater. 
The uh, movie just recently passed the $100 million mark, and it has absolutely uh, stunned the movie industry and the nation for its popularity. In uh, it, uh, it beat out a new Indiana Jones movie when it opened. Uh, it, it tells the story of former Homeland Security agent Tim Ballard, who's played by Jim Caviezel, who's uh, fighting child trafficking. And... Um, since the film opened July 4th, several patrons of AMC theaters and Regal Cinemas have complained on social media that they've been forced to evacuate theaters due to unforeseen circumstances. On TikTok, one user, Ohio rapper Jam Skillet, a.k.a. Jacob Matthews, reported that when he saw the film, there was no air conditioning running, leaving the, the theater unbearably hot, he wrote. He said he was told the system wasn't working. He also noted that when he bought tickets, this, the uh, entire theater was almost booked. But on arrival, there was only eight people seated. He wrote, I don't think anything of this. I didn't think anything of this until I got on TikTok a few days later and come to find out that hundreds of other people are experiencing the same thing, he said. So AMC and Regal, the people who own it, are not running air conditioning. They're making it hard to get tickets. The, the project has been targeted by those accusing it of having links to extreme right QAnon conspiracies, etc. Uh, but investigative reporter Andy New confirmed that one of those smearing the movie, I talked about this recently, Noah Berlatsky, is the former spokesperson for the foundation Prostasia. This is a leading group driving the left's escalating campaign to recast pedophiles as victims of stigma and Minor Attracted Persons, or MAPS. Uh, Berlatsky is uh, the author of Wonder Woman, Bondage and Feminism in the uh, Marston Peter comics. Uh, he wrote an opinion piece for Bloomberg headlined, QAnon and Sound of Freedom both rely on tired Hollywood tropes. And as a new tweeted, leftist activist Noah Berlatsky, the spokesperson, sp the spokesperson for MAP, claims that pedophiles are a stigmatized group who get designated as deviants for hateful purposes. Well, they are deviants, and they deserve the electric chair. Full stop. All right, coming up on the show today, uh, last order of business in hour two, I'll speak with a, a filmmaker, Paul Coides, who is the director, producer, writer, editor of a, a new film about Yorkville. Yorkville in the 1960s, the, uh, the tremendous folk and uh, art scene that happened in the Yorkville neighborhood back in the uh, 1960s. I'll also speak with a, an 81-year-old private detective named Susan Daniels, and uh, she'll tell her story about how she was the one who discovered then-President Barack Obama was using what appears to be a stolen social insurance number that was issued in the state of Connecticut. He never set foot in the state of Connecticut when he was 15, when he, at the time he was issued the, uh, the, the uh, social security number. And in fact, it was a social security number that was originally owned by someone born in the year of 1890. So there's some shenanigans afoot. Susan is also the author of The Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama. This hour, the sofa cinephile will be here. But coming up first, Harrison Faulkner talks about our broken judicial system. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Friday, July the 21st, in the year of our Lord, 2023. Facta non verba.
We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. How many times have we heard opposition leader Pierre Polyev, for example, say this country is broken? Never mind Pierre Polyev. How many times have you said this country is broken, whether it's... uh, uh, you know, passport offices not being able to deliver passports on time, uh, the uh, the crumbling infrastructure in this country, uh, airport uh, uh, boondoggles and delays. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, but Harrison Faulkner has pointed to one area that perhaps is most troubling of all when we speak of a uh, our broken country, and that has to do with our justice system. Harrison Faulkner is the host of Ratioed and co-host of Fake News Fridays at True North, TNC.News. Harrison, welcome back. How are you? Doing well, Richard. This is an incredibly important subject that I think uh, just really needs to be highlighted. So I'm glad we're able to do this. Right. One of the things that you you talk about in uh, Ratioed is, and we're all bearing witness to this, we have these repeat offenders, violent offenders, back out on the street, under very uh, lax bail conditions, only to turn around and commit other heinous and violent crimes. It's a complete revolving door. Uh, I mean, we sound like a broken record just even talking about it. The police chiefs are just fed up with it. Nothing gets done. Meanwhile, uh, while these uh, violent offenders are back out on the street, we have um, essentially political prisoners. And you, uh, you refer to, of course, the, uh, the, the group of individuals called the Coots Four, uh, who were arrested on, I guess, conspiracy to commit murder of four RCMP officers or something like that. I can't remember the exact formal charges that were laid. They've been in, in jail for over 500 days um, no trial date, no uh, no details, really. It's a complete cone of silence on this case. So uh, tell me what's happening with the, the Coots 4. So what we know right now is that these four men who were caught up really in a sting operation during that Coots blockade, this is right before the Emergencies Act. In fact, these men were all arrested the day that the Emergencies Act was invoked. So it really does raise some serious questions about the connection between this and, of course, the prime minister's decision to make that uh, very serious decision. Now, what's going on is that these men were char- have been charged with conspiracy to commit the murder of an RCMP officer. That carries with it uh, a life sentence, as far as I know. So it is as serious as actually murdering an, an RCMP officer. These are serious charges. Now, these men have been held... In, in jail, in remand, actually, for over 515 days. They've got no no bail and no trial date set, which is really uh, an egregious, an egregious uh, misstep of justice. Even the most violent offenders get, uh, get bail. It might be very expensive, but they do get the op- option to, to get bail. Um, and they do have a trial date set. We have charter rights that state that a a timely trial. Everyone has a right to a timely trial, except for these men, it appears, Richard, because uh, these men have been held in this condition without any information, without any trial date set. In fact, it keeps getting pushed back, and the expectation is that their trial will be, well, could be as late as June of 2024, which would, which would, which would take this into really unprecedented territory, as far as I can tell. So, 
Um, these men were caught up in a sting operation. Two undercover RCMP officers have a- a- allegedly caught them um, with plans to smuggle weapons into the Coots Co- border blockade and allegedly use those weapons to carry out the murder of an RCMP officer. Uh, as is written in this Newsweek magazine article, which was released a few days ago, the evidence is not strong at all, despite the charges being as serious as they are. You've got text messages and you've got undercover RCMP officers saying that this was what they were planning to do. But other than that, there really isn't much else going on. The evidence, from what we can tell, doesn't really match the accusations and the charges. But again, there is a there is a court uh, publication ban on some of the information and evidence that we know of. The reason this is all coming to light, I'll just wrap up here. The reason this is all coming to light now is because on Tuesday, a pre-trial date hearing is taking place. And that is going to attract a large amount of media attention. People are really starting to pay attention because even international media are starting to catch on that this looks like a clear case of political prisoners being treated far worse than repeat violent offenders who are getting out on bail and out into the streets, roaming the streets as we speak. It almost seems as if this is being done by design, I don't know, to uh, to instigate uh, or to, um, I don't know, infuriate, infuriate Canadians. Uh, if that's the stated objective, I think it's working. Well, it certainly does look like that's working, but there's an interesting angle to this, and that is that media, legacy media, and even independent media have really not been paying attention to this. It's sort of flown under everyone's radar, uh, mine included. Really, it wasn't until I read this Newsweek magazine article, which is, a, of course, foreign media, it's American, that I really started to think to myself, well, this this sounds like an absolute travesty of justice. If what is being written in this article is true, and I have no reason to believe it isn't, this is a shocking story. And And for whatever reason, the media have not been paying attention to this. And I think that I think that depending on what happens on Tuesday in this pre-trial date hearing, we're going to see this is really going to be a big story. Uh, there is news that Fox is going to pick this up and really, really dig their claws into the story. And I hope they do, because as I point out in my show yesterday, we have, for example, in Winnipeg, a repeat violent sex offender who the Winnipeg police know almost for certain is going to reoffend is out on the streets, was released back onto the streets um, just a few weeks ago. That 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 cold-blooded, uh, well, that, that mother who was killed in the streets in on, Leslieville. on a Friday afternoon. That's right. In Leslieville, yeah. that's right. This, this, this innocent mother who was gunned down in the streets was allegedly killed by a man out on bail. Yes, um, this is the same guy that he recently stabbed someone in the heart and served 15 months and then as you say out on bail harrison we'll uh, we'll take a quick time out we could do the whole show on these heinous examples of our justice system failing us harrison faulkner is the host of ratio and co-host of fake news fridays at true north tnc.news back with more of our conversation right after these Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. Harrison Faulkner stays with us from True North. Support independent media, tnc.news, tnc.news. Talking about our uh, justice system, which uh, is failing us, just like every other institution uh, in this country. We were talking about the... um, 
uh, the catch and release uh, of violent offenders who were back out on the street to re um, and, and recommit uh, violent crimes. Meanwhile, we have you use the term political prisoners. Uh, we have the uh, the Coots Four who were uh, in jail over 500 days. Um, allegedly, well, the charges is, uh, were that they conspired to murder RCMP officers during the uh, the Coots blockade. Of course, that was um, uh, the the day that the uh, emergency order was issued. Um, so, I mean, do you? I, I know you put this question out to your to your viewers and your listeners. You know, what do you think is behind this? Why is the why is the the judicial system in this country? you know, releasing violent offenders out onto the street and, and, you know, jailing people like Tamara Leach, for example, for, for uh, weeks and weeks for, uh, you know, a mischief charge. What, what do you think is behind this? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Are you ready for a rewarding career in the electrical industry? Quality Electric of the Coastal Carolinas, QECC, is looking for qualified electricians and electrical helpers to join its Charleston team. QECC offers guaranteed full-time hours, make up to $30 per hour with possible performance bonuses and career growth opportunities. Enjoy benefits like health insurance, dental and vision coverage, 401k plans, and more. If you're a motivated, experienced electrician, this job is for you. QECC is an equal opportunity employer. For all job inquiries, send email to hr at qeccinc.com. Tough to say, um, Richard, but there is there is a connection between what we're seeing now in Canada and what we've seen in a lot of these blue states in the United States. Uh, you know, you've got these district attorneys in the U.S. who have been basically doing the exact same thing, releasing these people back onto the streets in this catch and release system. We're seeing it play out in Toronto and we're seeing it play out across our entire country. Um, I, I really don't know what what this what what the objective is here. Now there are two pieces of legislation that I want to highlight. Um, there's a bill Bill C seventy five, which was passed, I believe, in uh, twenty eighteen or so. And this bill, it, basically, it's it's bail reform legislation. And the whole idea is it, it's it, as as the government writes out, it's designed to seek to address the disproportionate impacts on groups that are overrepresented in Canada's criminal justice system, in particular Indigenous persons and individuals from vulnerable populations. They've also introduced a bill called Bill C-5, which uh, shrinks mandatory minimum sentencing specifically to try and, uh, as they write, address the disproportionate number of black and indigenous people in our prison system. So it does feel as though there's a, there is these, these woke racial policies mixed in with this decision here. 
What is really behind it? I'm not sure, but I can, we, we all know the outcome because we've, we've lived under it for now a few years. Uh, our streets and our cities are unusually dangerous. It's not like we've, we really haven't seen this um, over the, unless you're living in just the past few years. Things have, th- things have deteriorated. It's not just our cities, it's our rural areas too. Crime is rising at, at unprecedented rates. And you could you could play this out that if things get so bad, well, that justifies stricter rules. That justifies a stronger government crackdown, which of course means limiting our rights. So if you want to play it out that way, my belief, without trying to sound too conspiratorial, is that if things continue to go down this path, things get so dangerous, well, the government has to step in and we start to lose more of our rights as citizens. Um, that certainly seems to be what my audience believes is up here. And I, I, I tend to believe that might be what's going on as well. Right. And, and, uh, in addition, we have the targeting of, of certain groups, protesters, namely, whether we're talking about the Coots four and if, and if true, you know, that if they did conspire, I mean, that to, to murder, that's a very serious charge and they should be dealt with severely. Um, however, there are some serious questions about those charges, as you mentioned, then I, we get back to Tamara Leach, uh, and, and. And it it's it almost smacks of the way the J six uh, defendants have been handled, thrown away. For example, just the other day, I was talking about uh, three gentlemen, two of whom are elderly. All three of them, I believe, are veterans. They were on Capitol Hill January sixth, simply to go and hear Donald Trump speak. At a certain point, they walked into the Capitol building because they needed to go to the bathroom. They actually uh, asked directions from a D.C. um, uh, police officer uh, were shown where to go to the washroom. They left. Several weeks later, they had armed SWAT teams showing up at their house, and they are now facing three years in jail, basically being treated like domestic terrorists because they went in to use the bathroom in the Capitol building. Uh, And that uh, that seems to be. Well, we're getting a bit of a taste of that here as well. We'll uh, take a quick time out. Harrison Faulkner stays with us. More to come of the Richard Serrett Show right after these. You're listening to the Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. And a few minutes remain with Harrison Faulkner, the host of Ratioed and also co-host of Fake News Friday at True North. How do we watch Ratioed, Harrison? You can watch Ratioed. We put out new episodes every Monday and Thursday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, You can watch Ratioed by going to our website, tnc.news. You can also find us on YouTube, Rumble, and Facebook, or on Twitter. We post the links to every show there at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. So I want to switch gears here. I guess it's somewhat related, but it has to do with um, the OPP warning parents that a child sex offender, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. A child sex offender is living at a daycare for kids with autism. Tell us about uh, uh, this situation in Essa Township. Right. So this is an incredible story. And on Monday, it starts on Monday, when the OPP issued a rare public statement warning the public that a registered sex offender is residing at a uh, a, a children's camp for kids with autism. These are our most vulnerable children in our society, some of them. And, and a, a registered sex offender has been living at this facility that his wife runs. 
And these and this facility has been open for a year and a half. Now, now, now take that in. I mean, a registered sex offender, which the police know about, has been residing at this facility that has been open for a year and a half. Now, basically, the news picks this story up on Tuesday. And uh, basically, everyone writes about this, and, and it really blows up. And then on CTV, they interviewed this man, Lauriston Charles Maloney, this registered sex offender who had uh, 16 charges related to sex trafficking and was convicted with sex trafficking a minor. This, this is a, this is a, a serious, uh, serious problem. Anyway, CTV News interviews this man and he goes on the record and says that he accuses the police of trying to trump up these charges and make it seem as though he's more dangerous than he is and that he actually has no interaction with the children at this facility, which is obviously to anybody complete a, a complete lie. Um, now, well, here's, I have yeah. two questions. Number one yeah. is why doesn't Maloney, who who has access to these uh, autistic children, in some cases severely autistic children at this daycare, how does a child sex offender have no um, no restrictions uh, once he gets, you know, released, um, you know, keeping him away from children? And number two, how does his uh, how does the woman running this daycare get a license to run a daycare when she's married or 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 living with a registered child sex offender? I really I really don't know um, the the OPP statement which outlines this man's charges and this man's criminal past does say, or, or in in, in uh, future comments to the media, the OPP said that there weren't any restrictions on Maloney uh, for being around children, um, which is very strange. And I don't know exactly the, the, the license process for his wife, Amber Maloney. Now this story does play out. So on Wednesday morning, parents, hold a protest outside of this facility. I went to that protest and I interviewed these, these mothers who had sent their children to this facility in some cases for over a year. Um, and they were just outraged. They were, they were understandably that this facility was allowed to operate um, without knowing. The parents did not know that this man had this criminal past. And basically what happens is on Wednesday evening, the police arrest Maloney and his wife, Amber Maloney, they're now in jail. They're facing human trafficking related charges. So the way that this story plays out is on Monday, they issued a rare public statement, which kind of tipped a lot of people off to the fact that they were investigating this guy and, the, and his wife. And by Wednesday evening, him and his wife are arrested facing human trafficking charges. But the question that I point out on my show after interviewing these mothers who are just un beside themselves is, as you kind of pointed out, Richard, how is this allowed to operate for over a year and a half? You know, regardless of the license process, regardless of whether or not this was on the books or not, the police know about this man. They knew about his record. And surely uh, there is some sort of duty to tell these parents about what's going on here. And that was not, that was not done. And so it's, it's serious when you, when you, when you contrast this situation with what we're now what we're now seeing with political prisoners in this country it looks as though it looks as though the entire system has just broken down and it's it, it feels it feels dangerous lawless and seriously 
seriously broken. It is. It is seriously broken. It is also the theater of the absurd. Uh, Harrison Faulkner is the uh, host of Ratioed and co-host of Fake News Friday on True North, TNC.news. Harrison, great work. Thank you as always. Thank you. When we come back, the Sofa Cinephile, right here on The Richard Serrett Show. Don't go away. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. The Sofa Cinephile on The Richard Serrett Show. What did he tell you? He told me lots and lots of things. The night before your father died, he told me what he did with that money. He said, you tell my little girl, Pearl, that there's to be no secrets between her and you. The children know where it's hid. John knows. Where's the money hid? I don't know nothing. You think you can make me tell, but I won't. I won't. I won't. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Now, aren't you afraid, little lambs, down there in all that dark? Wow, there you go. The Night of the Hunter, a 1955 American film noir thriller directed by Charles Lawton, starring Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winter, Winters, rather, and Lillian Gish, a silent uh, movie star. And uh, here are to unpack the new 4K edition. Christopher Garitano, award-winning filmmaker, TV producer, and host of the wildly popular podcast, Off to the Witch. Christopher, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Uh, this is it's kind of a strange film, as I recall. Uh, I, I don't know what, what else to compare it to. It's got um, uh, some Mother Goose kind of vibe to it, some German expressionism. I mean, Southern sure. thick. It's, it's weird. Sure. That's, and that was Lawton's influence, you know, uh, throughout the picture that ultimately it bombed on its release, believe it or not, later became a very influential film on some of the most famous directors like Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee and um, praised as a masterpiece, but it did not do well because of how weird it was on its initial release. Oh, Charles Lawton directed. I, I never thought of Lawton. And we're talking about the great actor, the hunchback in Notre Dame. And- sure. Mutiny on the Bounty, Spartacus, and I didn't know he was a director. This was his only movie, and I think he was so discouraged at it bombing on its release that he did not want to direct again, which is a shame. You know, he he worked with um, Stanley Cortez, I believe is the cinematographer's name, who worked with Orson Welles on The Magnificent Ambersons. He saw those movies. He was obviously a big fan of German Expressionism filmmaking, and he made this fable about a serial killer preacher who was uh, looking for $10,000 during the depression era. Right, right. He's, um, I guess he's in prison and he meets this condemned murderer played by Peter Graves who can sure. him that he hid $10,000 in stolen loot. And then uh, Robert Mitchum finds Peter Graves or his character's children and tries to get the, uh, the location of the money from them. Sure. And in the original, think about this, you know, he played Max Cady in the original Cape Fear, which Martin Scorsese later remade. But Night of the Hunter, I think, was a bigger influence on Scorsese. And if you look at some of the camera moves, they're identical to Scorsese's moves. And a lot of his films, they're old moves. I've seen them in the Twilight Zone. I've seen them in old films. And a lot of them, 
is because of the big cumbersome cameras that you could only move in that way for certain things. So the cinematographers, you know, the actual cameras back then dictated how they moved. But Scorsese loves those those movements as they, I, you know, they they represent classic cinema. Right. It's just an homage to a, a bygone era. I mean, you don't need to you don't have the cumbersome cameras anymore. You don't need to do that. But it's no, not at all. Interesting uh, casting, Robert Mitchum. I've always liked uh, Robert Mitchum. I, I, I don't know uh, if he ever won an Academy Award. I never thought he got his due as an actor. Your thoughts? I don't believe he did. I, you know, I loved his stuff when he was younger. Um, you know, his lighter stuff, I guess, uh, is not as memorable for me personally. But I know he did end up having a cameo in, in um, Scorsese's remake of Cape Fear. Ah, I forgot about that. Yes, yes. And Lillian Gish, who um, started like in, in I think she got her start in D.W. Griffith's um, uh, one of his earlier uh, silent pictures. And she was still around in 55 making films. Sure, sure. Well, you know, again, Lawton being a huge fan of of that work and um, you know, he played the hunchback back then. He should have made more movies. Everybody agreed. Unfortunately, look what happens. You know, there are movies that bomb on their release. Think about Blade Runner. Mm. was not a success at all, but to this day is hailed as a classic. Night of the Hunter, how does it look in the new 4K edition? Oh, absolutely beautiful. This is a beautiful movie. It's, it's, it, so he does draw, Lawton draws on that cinematography of, of the classic silent era German expressionism films. Uh, and it looks like a fable. It is strange. It's a strange film. And I know that Cortez had taught Lawton how to make a movie as a, as cinema, you know, Lawton knew what he knew from being part of a film, but he did not know how to shoot and, and, and get coverage on a film. And Cortez taught him that. Any interesting uh, little extras in the 4K package? Yeah. You know, interesting enough. OK, so in Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing, there's a character named Radio Rahim. And he ha- he does the whole love and hate speech in his own urban way. And do the right thing. Well, the cinematographer on that film was Ernest Dickerson, who is also a director in his own right. And him and Spike Lee both were huge influence on them. Night of the Hunter. It's their favorite movie. And that's why they did that speech. So Dickerson has uh, an extra on this talking about cinematography. Oh, cool. Cool. And how do we pick up a, a copy of uh, the 4K edition of the Night of the Hunter? Well, it just came out um, Tuesday. And so I guess it's available just about anywhere, Amazon and, uh, you know, big stores, uh, Best Buy and, you know, wherever you can find it. I think you can find it on Amazon for about 20 bucks. I'm a fan of film noir. Do you ever think that'll kind of make a comeback or has it maybe under a different uh, style? Ryan De Palma tried with the Black Dahlia and that was a weird movie. Maybe it'll be appreciated more down the road because it bombed. Um, I don't know. You know what I think it requires? Just a really strong picture and an audience that loves it. And then it comes back. All right. Great work. The Night of the Hunter, 1955 American film noir thriller directed by Charles Lawton, now available on 4K. Christopher Garitano is host of the uh off to the witch podcast how do we watch or how do we listen rather how do we listen go wherever you find your podcast search off to the witch last week we had an episode on haunted antiques and this week was uh an episode on someone's dmt experiences which they claim is a drug that helps them explore other worlds it is not just hallucination so i found that to be an interesting conversation very cool off to the witch wherever you listen to your podcast chris great work have a great weekend you as well thank you Stay tuned. More, <clears throat> more of the Richard Serrett Show coming your way in moments.
The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! And you will atone! Welcome to Hour 2 of The Richard Serrett Show, and if you missed Hour 1, well, you missed a lot. But don't despair. Still plenty of great programming coming your way this hour, including my interview with the director-producer of a brand new documentary about Yorkville, Toronto's celebrated artistic community during the 1960s where uh, everyone from Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Carly Simon, Buffy St. Marie, Steppenwolf, all performed in these uh, coffee houses, clubs, like the Purple Onion, the Penny Farthing, and uh, so many others. We'll uh, speak with Paul Coides about his film, Essential Noise, Volume 1. But first, the true story of Susan Daniels, an ordinary housewife from small-town Ohio, who, beginning in 2009, felt her country was being destroyed by the left from within. So... She decided to single-handedly take on the President of the United States, Barack Obama, by attempting to remove him from the state of Ohio presidential ballot in 2012. In her new book, The Rubbish Hauler's Wife vs. Barack Obama, Daniel sets the stage by recounting her life story, which began as an uphill battle from an unimaginable childhood to the murder of her husband, a rubbish hauler, by a Cleveland gangster named Danny Green. Susan Daniels, welcome. How are you? Thank you. Uh, I'm fine. I hope you are as too. I want you to uh, begin with... Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. 
some of your early history, because this is an important part of the story. And it's just remarkable what you accomplished in the face of all of this adversity. Tell me about your early days. Well, I was happily married at the age of 30, had seven children. The oldest was 10. Uh, I was married to a rubbish hauler. He had one of the largest rubbish hauling companies in in the city of Cleveland. And he was killed. And at the age of 30, I was left uh, with very few resources and uh, a high school education, nowhere to go. And um, I had no choice. I, you know, I had a forge on, which I did. I had to find ways to uh, support my family. The uh, the lawsuit for the, well, I, the, the probate court uh, suit, the lawyers kept it in, in court for seven and a half years. So there was very little money coming out of there for the family. Uh, needless to say, the lawyers were helping themselves. And uh, by the time it was finally done, I had I had straightened myself around. I went to, was going I was in college and uh, managed to uh, get get that done. I uh, had a number of jobs at the age of 52 or three. I became a private investigator. Uh, while I was doing that, I one of my clients in the, in the year 2009 asked me to um, uh, investigate Barack Obama. And I said, well, I don't think there's going to be much to find because he is already uh, installed in the White House. And I said, but I'll, I'll see what I could do. I was more than happy to take on the challenge because I thought he was, I could tell he was a very bad guy. I knew it when he was running for office. I, I knew he was a phony. Well, I, I, so I started looking at his background and the first thing I find is that he's got a social security number that was issued in the state of Connecticut in uh, March of, 20, of 1977. He was 15 years old and living at Hawaii at the time. What most people don't know is that social security numbers are assigned to certain states. Uh, like the, the first three numbers identify the state. 042, which is Obama's number, and he was using through his presidency, uh, is for the state of Connecticut. The numbers start low on the East Coast, get larger as they go West, and in Hawaii, the number should begin with 575 or 576. And Susan, that's what could, he should have had. Susan, if I could just interject. Uh, sure. what, um, this person who wanted you to investigate Barack Obama, um, I mean, you weren't getting any money for this, I'm presuming, to, to launch this investigation, or were you? Well, yeah. Hired, I was hired to uh, look into his background. Ah, you were okay. All right. So, where, how, yeah. do you, how did you decide so I, to? How yeah, did you decide I, to focus on his social security number? Well, I, that is the the most important thing. Uh, actually, all I did was I entered into the uh, database his name in the state of Illinois. I just wanted to see what would pop up, and there came the social security number. And then once I had that, I, I mean, that that's that's golden. So then I started running it and I, I found the addresses he had lived at. I found a, 
a cell phone number that he had used. Uh, and was interesting when I ran the cell phone number, it said that uh, it came up occasionally his date of birth was 1890. And that's what it said that this social security number had been assigned to somebody born in 1890. Now, what people don't understand is social security numbers are not assigned by the state you were born in, but where you live when you apply for them. So that means for him to get that number, he would have had to have been living in Connecticut in, uh, when he was 15 years old. And we all know he wasn't. And he was given, he was assigned a social security number that had previously been assigned to someone who was long probably dead and Correct. buried. Oh, yeah. Well, my theory is that uh, I I found when, when uh, anybody dies, all their information, their social security application, all that information becomes public record. Uh, and uh, I had a... Uh, I found a woman who was born in 1896 because people want to argue with me about, well, that's crazy that somebody from 1890 could have had that. Well, I found a uh, a file and the woman was born in 1896. She, she applied and got her number the same day that Barack Obama did. And it said in her file that she had used her husband's number until that point and he died and she needed to get her own number. And I surmise that it was because she probably, at the age of 87, probably needed health care and uh, would have had to have a social security number to get it. Well, not surprisingly, in June of 2011, they randomized how social security numbers are assigned. And I think that was done intentionally to try and confuse things about Obama's number. So what do you, what did you determine? I mean, or, or did you determine what was the, what's the purpose of assigning him an out of state social security number that previously belonged to someone else? Well, he, you know, if you recall, um, the passport office had been rifled while he was in office and all him his and his mother's information disappeared. Um, I think that they didn't want anybody to know where he had been previously. And I think they just, I don't know where the number came from. I don't know who assigned it, but it was uh, it was arbitrary. And uh, as I've said, if, if he came up, had come up with a California number, I would not have been, I, I wouldn't have paid any attention to it because I thought I could have thought that was just a mistake. But when I saw it was Connecticut and I knew immediately that it, that was not right. Um, I, I, that's where I, that's where the work started. All right. um, I was. And where did that lead you then? Once you determined that well, he had a, perhaps a phony secu a social security number, where did that lead? Well, I, I, I contacted some people. Um, stories started be, being written about him having the social security number that didn't belong to him. I, in 2012, filed a lawsuit in Ohio against the Ohio Secretary of State. They they are the ones that run the the elections, and uh, I I tried to get him to remove Barack Obama from the Ohio ballot. 
And you could imagine how successful that was. Yeah, not very, unfortunately. Susan, we'll take a quick time out and come back with more of your remarkable story. The Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Susan Daniels is here. Her book is The Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama. Uh, earlier, Susan, you were describing how you attempted to have Barack Obama uh, removed from the ballot in Ohio in 2012. That wasn't successful. So was that the end of it? What did you do after that? Oh, no. Oh, no. I I contacted every politician that I could think of, every Every main politician you've heard of at the time, I contacted them. I sent, I, I even sent some of them the entire lawsuit. My lawsuit, the complaint was 18 pages, but I included 83 pages of documentation uh, showing them what I was alleging was correct. And uh, of the 12 or 15 people I contacted, you know, uh, Cruz, Gaudi, Rubio, you know, all the big names. I never heard a single word back from any of them. And so I now words, believe they all knew that he, that, that he was not a legitimate candidate. In other words, not even the Republicans were interested because... Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. My congressman at the time was somebody I knew previously uh, who was a prosecutor in the, in the county I used to live in because I would um, uh, I would go there all the time. You know, I, I would work in the courthouse. I would see him. I knew him. I knew him before he was prosecutor. I knew him after he became congressman. And I, I kept sending him letters, and he just totally ignored me. They didn't mm-hmm. want to know. Susan Daniels is the author of The Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama. She's been a licensed private investigator in Ohio for 30 years, president of Susan Daniels and Associates. Uh, Susan, it says here in your bio, you're 81. I hope you don't mind me uh, telling you, you certainly don't uh, look <laughs> well, 81. The calendar just turned over, so now I'm 82. There you go. Well, you don't look 82, certainly, but are you still an active? <laughs> Thank pri- you. Are you still an active private investigator? Oh, yeah. I just renewed my license in March. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I, I, I intend to, to keep, uh, keep my license forever. But what this led to was me writing the book. And by the way, the book can only be uh, ordered on Amazon.com. Um, but right. That led me to write the book because I had a friend that... Uh, Kept kept telling me through the years, you know, you really ought to write a book. Your life has been has been anything but boring. And uh, when I had had all the information on Barack Obama, I started worrying about because I I started worrying a year ago when I kept hearing things about that Michelle Obama could possibly end up as the Democrat candidate, yes. and it's very apparent that Biden cannot be or will not be. And uh, I thought, you know, using a stolen Social Security number is a felony. And he, uh, we don't need it, that felon back in the White House again. And I thought, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make people know, as many people as I can, 
that he he is a felon. He even used the Connecticut number on his 2009 income tax because when it was filed and it was filed publicly, somebody forgot to, to remove the number. And I have a copy of his 2009 uh, cover page and it shows the Connecticut number on it. Susan, great detective work. And again, the book, The Rubbish the Rubbish Hauler's Wife versus Barack Obama, available at Amazon. Susan Daniels, thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. When we come back, a special look at Yorkville, the documentary. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Yorkville in Toronto, the good in the 1960s, kind of Toronto's version of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, New York's Greenwich Village. Some called it a festering sore in the middle of the city, uh, but for most, it was a breeding ground for <clears throat> tremendous, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> it was a breeding ground for creativity and poetry. There were readings in coffee houses by young literary talents like Margaret Atwood, and musicians from every conceivable genre, folk, rhythm and blues, jazz, rock, Gordon Lightfoot got his start there, Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon, such uh, notable clubs as the Purple Onion, the Penny Farthing, uh, and others. This is all now being documented, or has been documented, in a brand new documentary called Essential Noise, Volume 1, and the producer, director, writer, editor, Paul Coides joins us now. Hey, Paul, how are you? Hi, Richard. I'm great. I, I must say, after hearing your introduction, I kind of wished I had asked you to narrate my film. That was a fantastic intro, and you've got the perfect voice for it. Well, thank you. So I'm guessing you're my age, maybe a little bit younger, probably a little bit younger, you weren't around in in uh, the sort of the heyday, the halcyon days of the 1960s in Toronto. What attracted you to this subject matter? In fact, I was born uh, just at the tail end of it. So I was mm -hmm. born in 1970. So just when things were wrapping up and moving on to the next phase. But I have been attracted to this story for you know, many years now, as have many people, and many people have tried to to tell the story and make this film. Um, you know, I just happened to sort of break through and get it done. But there, there was something magical about that time that I think the world should know about. Well, I'll get you to sort of paint the scene for us. I mentioned that quote, festering sore in the middle of the city. That was Ontario MPP Sill Apps, I believe the same Sill Apps who played for the Toronto Maple Leafs at one time. Obviously not a fan of the uh, the hippie scene down in Yorkville, but what was it like? So that's interesting because I think that now when people look back on that time, they have this idyllic picture of the hippies as being something 
you know, really uh, accepted and cool and admired and, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, peaceful and pleasant and flowers in their hair. It was nothing like that. You know, people tend to forget that the hippie movement uh, was by and large a protest. Uh, they were protesting lots of things. They were protesting uh, mandatory um, involvement in a war that a lot of people didn't want. They were protesting the government. They were protesting a certain kind of capitalistic lifestyle that got out of control. So it was a time when music and politics came together. So the music uh, gave the politics meaning and the politics gave the music new meaning. And it was that magic uh, that created this little bubble in time that still reverberates. But it wasn't like people now seem to remember. It was a very, very intense time. Right. And so you had uh, Yorkville, you had these, I guess, kind of shabby Victorian row houses that were were uh, converted into coffee houses. Uh, you had... Uh, you know, hookup pipes and black light posters and and in blow up chairs and and um, lots of edgy art galleries down there. Um, so just kind of, I mentioned a couple of artists: Gordon Lightfoot, Carly Simon, um, Joni Mitchell. Kind of run through sort of a list of notables that that performed in Yorkville. It, it was, you know, there's all the big ones that everyone knows about. Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, uh, Steppenwolf. Uh, uh, but there's also a lot of seminal artists who influenced those artists who, for whatever reason, didn't break through uh, into our eternal memory in history. But, you know, there was, you know, influential bands like the Poppers or Kensington Market. Uh, there was Edward Bear, uh, uh, on and on and on. I mean, uh, you know, Judy Collins discovered, you know, three of her great performers out of that uh, kind of nest of talent that was in Yorkville. I interviewed about 30 or 40 people, including Robbie Krieger from The Doors, uh, who, who was a fan of that era because he started off as a folk guitarist. Judy Collins, who I mentioned, um, on and on. Uh, Sylvia Tyson. Uh, it's just really incredible when you look at the amount of talent that was attracted to that area. Bob Dylan would hang out there all the time. Uh, Rick James, who was actually uh, a big part of that scene and who actually, arguably, Rick James was the one who discovered Neil Young, not the other way around. The amount of trickling influence and artists who who hung out there, uh, you know, uh, Simon and Garfunkel, on and on and on, is really just mind-blowing. And it's amazing that more people don't know about it. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
You mentioned Rick James, and we think of the late Rick James as kind of a funk artist. Um, was he was he in a band? Was it called the Minor Birds, named after the club, yes. or was the club named after the band? It was one of those hippie things, uh, like an inception hippie moment where no one knows what begat what. But, you know, there's a segment in my film where I found some archival interview uh, with Jeannie Becker, who's also in the film. Jeannie Becker is a big part of this film. And uh, I found an interview back, uh, I think, from the 80s where uh, Rick James talks about how he had come over here from Buffalo, uh, escaping the draft in the United States, and had just seen the Love and Spoonfill. And that influenced him so much, he it blew his mind in terms of wanting to create kind of a new fusion of folk and R&B. And uh, he discovered Neil Young uh, just hanging out in a coffee shop and inducted Neil into his band. And they formed something called the Minor Birds, where they they enacted that fusion of uh, folk and R&B. And it's a very, he actually is very insightful in terms of what Neil Young was like in those early days and what motivated him. But the, the band in question was called the Minor Birds. And um, they were just that. They were a fusion of folk and R&B, but that blossomed off into a, a whole new area. Paul Coides is the writer, director, producer of a uh, brand new documentary called Essential Noise, Volume 1, about the uh, storied history of Yorkville, the music scene, the art scene in Toronto back in the uh, the 1960s. A quick time out, back with more of our conversation right after these. Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Ribbon of darkness over me Since my true love walked out the door Tears I never had before Ribbon of darkness over me Clouds are gathering o'er my head That kill the day and hide the sun and we are back with Paul Coides, who is the uh, producer, director, writer, editor of Essential Noise, Volume 1, a brand new documentary about uh, the Yorkville art scene, music scene back in the 1960s. Uh, why is it called Essential Noise? So there's many reasons uh, why this title sort of emerged. And I've been kind of working on this story for a couple of years, but I found some archival video from the broader coffee house movement that was happening uh, around North America, but other parts of the world too. I mean, Yorkville was just a part of that, but it was really a movement that was happening right across uh, America to a large extent. And in one of the archival videos, there was a little band called Essential Noise that was showcased for about three seconds. And uh, the name just really jumped out at me like nothing else. And I think because it means so much uh, uh, in terms of the what was happening during that time, but also just what this movement meant. Because I, you know, I I really do mean it when the political nature of the times gave the music meaning, and that's what made it break through. So that is why it's called essential noise, and it really was essential noise because it changed the world. It really did. So we've got this this area, Yorkville, which is uh, Bay Street and Bloor and uh, I guess Avenue Road or University Avenue, uh, which would be um, the other border. Um, anyway, 
why this particular, uh, I don't know if you get into this in the film, uh, but why this particular chunk of real estate, which is now very Tony uh, territory these days, but do, you, is there any, do we have any sense of why that particular uh, area took off as this arts community? Yes, there's a, a lot of reasons why, you know, these kinds of phenomena occur. Um, but primarily, it was driven by one very staple reason, uh, which really is what facilitates all kind of art communities, very cheap rent. Yorkville was not the place where you wanted to live back then. Uh, it was uh, a rundown neighborhood that was forgotten. Uh, nobody really cared about it. Uh, it was the place where back then, uh, the liquor laws being what they were, the so-called blue laws, you couldn't open up, you know, restaurants that were profitable. So a lot of these emerging kind of hippies, uh, beatniks come hippies, just started hanging out there. And, you know, one by one, they started opening coffee shops and it was a cheap place for artists to hang out. And really, it wasn't about the money back then. There was a bubble of time when, believe it or not, not everything was about the money. And so it just attracted these artists who would hang out there and work with other artists and they would collaborate and they could afford to be there. And uh, no one wanted to um, really, uh, you know, uh, uh, make too big of a deal about that area because uh, it didn't matter. And so it was a really unassuming place and it was a very relaxed place. And that is where all of this magic happened. And, um, you know, we do talk about this in the film. And uh, like with most areas, once it became cool and once this social movement of the people kind of happened very organically, it became very popular. And that's when the developers said, hey, this is uh, probably somewhere we could make some money. And so they uh, they invented something uh, called the hepatitis scare, uh, which drove people out of Yorkville in droves and uh, gave the uh, authorities, um, you know, that mixed in with some other behaviors with some bikers who infiltrated in the drug scene, which became very dark and heavy uh they were able to move all the hippies out and turn it into the you know multi-million dollar real estate that is uh, today okay so let's let's give it give give uh, the listeners sort of a time frame i think one of the clubs purple onion i mentioned earlier yeah that's that's that opened like 1960 so is that sort of the the beginning of the yorkville scene 1960 which is you know predates the the hippies that's more of the beatnik era right so um in the early 60s, and Sylvia Tyson talks about this quite a bit, is when the folk music revival was happening. So it was slowly trickling in consciousness. And what made that so powerful, as Judy Collins mentions in the film, was that it showed that back then all you needed was uh, an acoustic guitar and the truth, and you could make a splash in this world and even change it to some degree. And this whole singer songwriter revival happened because before that you had a lot of big bands from the fifties and it was a big industrial machine, you know, it was the birth of rock and roll and it was corporatized pretty quickly. So in the early sixties is when this sort of started to bubble up and these clubs started to happen, but really 
the peak year that I focus everything on in this film is around, you know, between 67 to 68. That's sort of when the peak of Yorkville is happening, you know, Summer of Love, uh, you know, Woodstock was just around the corner. Uh, really, that's the era. And then things kind of died out in the early 70s. I mean, that's when those, uh, you know, Murray McLaughlin, Bruce Colburn, those artists were sort of, you know, making their, their hay on the scene. Uh, but the real magic I would say uh, would be, uh, you know, two or three years before and after 1968. That's really was the peak. Um, Shea Monique's, that's, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Steppenwolf, uh, uh, formerly called the Sparrows. They were the, the house band for, for Shea Monique's. Um, are there other um, clubs that you that you sort of shine a spotlight on? I mentioned the oh. Purple Onion, Shea Monique's. What other clubs? The Minor Bird Club? Oh, the so many Boris's. Uh, there was, um, of course, the big one is the riverboat. I mean, that is sort of was the was the center of the universe uh, there uh, for um, for just all of it. Really, I think it was the riverboat that set the standard for all of the other clubs. But there was so many clubs. I mean, I think there was. I think John Kay from Steppenwolf talks about it, you know, 13 or 17 clubs that had sort of sprouted out uh, just in a very short time. And there was, you know, music all the time. There was also the Bohemian Embassy, which is uh, uh, was a favorite place of Margaret Atwood, uh, run by Don Cullen, who unfortunately passed away. And I should say about almost five or seven people that I interviewed for the film or was going to interview had passed away uh, during this time, which is why it was so urgent uh, to sort of get this done. But, um, you know, Bob Ezrin, uh, famed music producer behind, you know, seminal albums from, you know, Pink Floyd and U2 and Alice Cooper, uh, was also a big part of that scene because one of the clubs there was owned by his uncle. Uh, and, um, you know, he, uh, he used to hang out there all the time. And I think that's what really influenced uh his whole musical philosophy which then he gifted back to the world with all that great music that he was behind uh, uh producing since then paul we'll take another quick time out come back and discuss more of yorkville in the 1960s and the documentary film is essential noise volume one back with more of the richard sarah show right after these Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. minutes remain with Paul Kowithis, writer, director, producer, editor of a brand new documentary on Yorkville, the music cultural uh, scene back in uh, the late 1960s in Toronto. It's called Essential Noise, Volume 1. There's a, a big screening coming up in September at the another storied legendary club, which has since reopened its doors, the El Macombo. Tell us about it. Well, actually, there's, uh, September's really taken off because even more storied than the Alma Combo, we've just been invited to screen at the infamous Chelsea Hotel in wow. New York, where, of course, Leonard Cohen, Janis Joplin, Bob Dylan, uh, and, of course, some of the great literary 
writers of the world from William S. Burroughs and on and on have hung out that uh, we're planning a screening there um, that'll be connected to the United Nations in some degree because Bob Ray, our UN ambassador uh, to the United Nations, is a big folk guitar guy. And this is kind of what um, you know he, he grew up on. But not only are we going to be at the Alma Combo, um, there's going to be another big screening in Oshawa in September because we mentioned Steppenwolf, uh, the you know quintessential 60s rebel song born to be wild was written by somebody from oshawa because steppenwolf had their roots here in oshawa but we'll be traveling to los angeles uh, we've been invited to boston we've already screened uh we were just invited to uh sofia in bulgaria where the film won best music documentary uh against entries from over 127 countries uh and uh that's where we ran into alice cooper and johnny depp and all sorts of people so the film is really traveling. It's also traveling across uh, Canada as well, but we will be at the Alma Combo, uh, we hope, uh, uh, September 12th during the Toronto International Film Festival week, which will be an interesting year because there may not be any Hollywood celebrities in town. So instead, uh, you know, we hope that we'll attract a lot of people to our screening. But yeah, the film is really, really taken off. It's just remarkable. Um, there is a whole... Letter Cohen connection to all of the uh, venues and dates, uh, which I'm happy to explain if you want. But the film has really been embraced. I mean, people love it. Uh, and uh, it, it was made with heart and soul and not a lot of money, kind of like how all that great music was made in the 60s. How do we get more information? Is there a website? Yeah, so uh, I've turned to uh, Facebook because it's amazing. Facebook is actually the go-to kind of platform for a lot of people from the boomer generation who I'm kind of speaking to with this. I should also mention, though, young people who see this film, you know, who are still in college, invariably every time I show this film I mean I just showed it at Mariposa we opened Mariposa uh and Gordon Lightfoot's daughter came every young person who sees this or sorry at every screening I have a young person uh come up to me and say you know watching this makes me wish I was still alive that I was alive in the 60s to experience it because it it, it takes you back so I turned to Facebook um it's just facebook.com slash essential noise volume one is sort of where all the information is where all of our screening dates are happening uh, and people if they're interested in planning a screening please get in touch you know there's no cost this is a free community event it's very hippie powered we just want to take the story out to the people paul coitas is the director producer writer editor of essential noise volume one chronicling the the heyday of yorkville and the music and the art scene there um you mentioned the leonard cohen uh connection to some of the uh the screening dates can you want to uh, do you want to elaborate on that sure this this uh if it doesn't uh get too mystical I, i'd be happy to um uh for some strange reason i kind of mentioned that all of our screenings have been organic it's not like i've been out there promoting it i just sort of opened this up and you know it's magnetized certain kind of people to us and um uh, uh, it all kind of started when I cut the film myself around Christmas time and in, in the new year. Uh, I was sort of sitting on it, trying to figure out what to do with this uh, kind of, you know, beatnik style, kind of Jack Kerouac-esque uh, sort of, you know, nod to Yorkville, my own way to tell that story. It's not a traditional documentary by any means. And uh, I happened to see this large poster of Leonard Cohen in downtown Toronto around March, I think. And I, I stopped and I had this weird moment with it because um, 
you know, I've got a pretty close connection with Leonard's family and his son, Adam, and a few other people that, you know, I've met along the way. And I don't know what came over me, but I kind of made eye contact with this kind of portrait of Leonard, sort of larger than life out in the streets of Toronto. And uh, I think in my head, I sort of said, you know, Leonard, thanks for nothing. You know, I, I just, um, I, I felt like I had done all this stuff on his behalf and really none of the karma came back my way. I don't know why I said it. I don't know why I thought it. It's not like who I am, but it just came over me. I, I tipped my hat and walked on. And about an hour later, I got this bizarre, out of the blue email from his son say, hey, Paul, I just wanted to let you know that I've been thinking about you a lot and I haven't had a time to sort of write and about how you've, you know, helped me and been a big part of, you know, our, our you know, uh, what we've done in the past. And I just wanted to make sure I said thank you to you. And I've been thinking a lot about St. Paul. Now I should backtrack a little, but uh, uh, St. Paul is what Adam Cohen, Leonard's son, uh, would used to call me uh, as a nickname years ago when I when I first uh, presented him in Toronto. Anyhow, after that bizarre email that happened shortly after I had this weird moment with the effigy of Leonard Cohen, um, all of a sudden I started getting all of this movement on this film and every single screening that has been booked is either somehow connected to Leonard Cohen his birthday or places where he's gone. As an example, we got invited to this festival in Boston, which is kind of out of the blue. And it turns out, you know, uh, 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 Boston, uh, just outside of Boston, is the birthplace of Jack Kerouac, uh, who, uh, you know, Leonard Cohen was a big fan of. And uh, when I was in Montreal, uh, again, the home of Leonard Cohen, where we had a fantastic screening. I happened to be there on my name day, on the Feast of St. Paul. Uh, uh, I'm going to St. Paul's Newfoundland. Um, there's uh, When we are planning our screening date in uh, in Oshawa uh, for our, our, our uh, Steppenwolf sort of special cut that happens to be on Leonard Cohen's birthday. Every screening uh, that we're, and now I've just been invited to the Chelsea Hotel. So I cannot explain it. And I'm actually getting chills as I explain, as I tell you this, but every screening organically. So is somehow driven by this Leonard Cohen, St. Paul connection. So I joke that the tour is unofficially sponsored by the spirit of Leonard Cohen. Essential Noise, Volume 1, writer, director, producer, uh, editor, Paul Coides. Uh, thank you so much for taking us down, well, some of us down memory lane, some of us for in, re, uh, or introducing us to this unique chapter in uh, not only Toronto's history, but in uh, in music and uh, literary history as well. Great job. Good film. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And come check out a screening if you want. It's open to the public. The more the merrier. All right. That's it for me. My thanks, Jacob, Jody, and Ryan. I'll be back on Monday with a very special announcement, God willing. I'll speak with you at 4 p.m. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Monday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? 
President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.